Welcome to another episode of the Door of Hope Leadership Podcast. I am Cameron Hager, uh, pastor of community groups at Door of Hope, and I'm here with uh, a good friend, actually, Seth Mercer. What's up, Seth? Cameron, it's very good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, just by way of disclaimer, uh, we often, we most typically record these uh, over at the church building on Fremont, and today we are in the Hager family basement. We've got a dog <laughs> between us that's currently napping, uh, getting its belly rubbed by Seth. Um, it could bark. <laughs> My baby could wake up. Uh, so who knows what kind of crazy stuff we're going to get up to here. Um, but hopefully we'll be able to record a podcast. Um, so that's the goal. Um, before we jump into today's topic, Seth, I would love uh, you to introduce yourself just to listeners a little bit. For those of you who don't know, Seth is one of the elders at Door of Hope. How long have you been an elder at Door of Hope? That is a great question. I feel like I've looked this up by kind of referencing emails. That's the way I think about it. <laughs> so I got invited to be an elder. I want to say it was 2012 or 2013. It was back when we were on the, uh, the Hinson Annex building, and so it's probably been about five or six years mm. that I've been an elder at Door of Hope. Right on. That's most of. That's more than half of the church's that's history. That's a good chunk of time. That's a good chunk. Um, tell us, just give us, give us the thirty-second overview. What's life like for you right now? What do you do? Tell us a bit about your family. Sure. Um, I am married to my very beautiful wife, Anna. Uh, we will have our 10-year anniversary here in October, so we're looking forward to that. We have an adorable, very funny little two-and-a-half-year-old girl named Lamb at home. <laughs> She's so awesome. She is phenomenal, and she loves uh, Baby Lane, your son. Talks <laughs> about him frequently. Um, and, uh, yeah, so our life is great. We live not too far from your house here up on Mount Tabor, and uh, I work as an emergency physician at uh, a hospital in the area, South Portland. And uh, that's the, the 30 second synopsis of my life. Yeah, that's great. Give me, give me your top two or three just interests, hobbies. What do you, how do you like to, to spend time with all the free time you have between doctoring and familying and eldering and all the things that you do? Yeah, I'm lucky to have a job that affords me quite a bit of free time. Um, a lot of it is devoted to the church, which I really love and enjoy. So uh, being an elder as well as a community group leader. Looking forward to being a community group mentor going on here uh, in this fall season. Uh, outside of church, uh, really love just spending time with my family. We do a lot of travel. This year we got out to Italy. We're heading off to San Francisco uh, later on in September, up to Vancouver in October. So always planning another trip to just experience the world. Uh, and what else do I do? I'm, I'm involved in a pretty significant reading group, and we get together every week now for probably seven years and uh, just explore a, a lot of great books together. Um, and then I run a ton. That's uh, right. Lots of running up on Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is my backyard, so I get up there as frequently as I can. You're one of those people <laughs> who runs for fun. I run slowly, but I do run. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, for those of you listening, um, man, Seth, Seth and Anna both have just been huge blessings to our family personally. I know to a lot of you uh, that have been around Door of Hope for a while, you probably met with Seth or Anna or both, and uh, I just want to say thanks for all your faithful ministry to our church, man. Pleasure is all mine. It's a joy. It's awesome. Well, um, the subject for today is uh, got a couple couple big words in it. We're, we're titling this thing, Theology, Orthodoxy, and Certainty. Um, and, and basically, uh, the, the conversation is going to be around um, what does it 
what is Christian orthodoxy? We throw that word around a lot. We want to, at Door Hope, we very explicitly, we want to be a church that's, that's um, transmitting uh, the orthodox faith um, that we've received, hopefully. Um, but what, it, and we can talk about that. The, the, the lingo gets thrown around a lot. I feel like it's even a buzzier word now in the last maybe five, ten years. But we want to define, like, okay, what when we use that word, what do we mean, and how do we know what it means, or how do we determine what bits of theology are orthodox, which ones are its opposite, heresy? Um, and then we also want to talk through, man, how do we uh, figure out with that in the background, like? What are our die-for issues? What are the ones that are kind of secondary? We use that language a lot around Dorf Hope as well, mm-hmm. as we want to be kind of unified in the essentials, but not sort of needlessly dividing over secondary matters. And so the que- it just begs the question, how do you determine all this stuff? Right. Um, so that's what we're going to try to do. Uh, we want to recognize from the get-go uh, this is a huge conversation. Uh, neither of us are experts in this conversation. Um, so we, we know it's going to be brief. We hope it's helpful. And as always, there's going to be some additional resources in the, the handout that's attached to this. Uh, so you can go and listen to podcasts, read some articles, pick up some books. And then uh, if that doesn't satisfy you, call us up. We'll get coffee with you and we'll talk about it more. Um, Absolutely. So let's, let's start here. Um, why would you say, Seth, uh, just briefly, why, why is it important that we have right theology in a local church? Yeah. Um, uh, well, many reasons, I think. Um, I think there's a uh, scriptural admonition to know God, and, and it's an invitation to know God. And so... I think orthodoxy, right knowledge of God, is important for our, our worship and our relationship with God. Uh, there are many ways that, and it's, it's it'll probably become more clear as we get into some of the, the details, there's many ways to misunderstand God or to misperceive God or to worship something that is not God. Um, and so I think primarily and fundamentally as a question of knowing who we worship, it's important to have uh, a clear understanding of the God that we're, that we're praying to, that we're worshiping, that we're serving. Yeah. Yeah. I even think, you know, you, you read some of the new Testament passages, especially the epistles. I've just got one in front of me right here in second Peter two, one, uh, Peter writes, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Um, in Galatians 1.9, Paul says, as, as we've said before, now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Uh, so the apostles had pretty strong language for people who would uh, twist and distort the authentic message of Jesus, um, often for personal gain or sometimes out of ignorance. Whatever it may be, there's there's a real emphasis in the scripture on um, helping people rightly understand God and what He's done and who He is and His character and His nature and all these things. And so uh, the, the question quickly becomes: Okay, so we we want to do theology rightly. Um, where do we where, where do we go to do that? Um, so one of the places I like to start. Um, and there's a whole larger kind of philosophical conversation around like the method of theology. But 
I always like to just go to the person of Jesus. And I think Josh does such a good job of calling us back to that center. Um, Hebrews 1 reminds us that though God previously had spoken through prophets um, in various channels, in the incarnation, he spoke to us in son, in his son, through his son. He, he, in God himself incarnated into human history. And that's really our f- clearest and best picture of who God is, what he's about. Um, it's God cast in human terms. So we want to start with Jesus and then let Jesus's life and then his teachings begin to shape for us, um, kind of our methodology. Sometimes people can, can wedge then Jesus versus the Bible. Sometimes the biblical text can be viewed as like, mm. I don't know, contrary to Jesus, or there's a lot of talk about making the Bible an, an idol over against Jesus. And I'm, I, I do think that's mm. possible. Um, but I don't know, maybe we should talk about Jesus's relationship to the Bible. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was just going to say there's also, as I was doing some of the reading around this, there's pretty ancient examples of that. So the, the heresy of Martianism, um, there was that gentleman, I, I think he was the second century figure who did precisely that. He, he had a hard time uh, making sense of both Jesus and then the context in the old Testament yeah. and from a Judaic tradition. And to that end, he created a whole separate edited text of New Testament that wiped out, chopped off the parts that yeah, didn't that, uh, that accord didn't... in his opinion with who Jesus was. Yeah, so that difficulty's been around for a long time, and I think it's really understandable. But but clearly that that was deemed fairly heretical, a, a clear heresy there, not not just a agree to disagree, but a, a Jesus himself identifies uh, his history, as you said, that verse in Hebrews that. He comes from the Old Testament. It's he is the fulfillment of prophecy. So he clearly saw himself in that tradition. But uh, so I think to that end, it is crucial that we identify Christ in the context of the tradition that he identified himself in. Yeah. So Jesus, when Jesus was ministering and having getting in theological disputes, let's say with the Pharisees, he wasn't. His argument wasn't. Look, you guys need to get rid of the of your Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Right. His argument was, you guys are misrepresenting it, you're misunderstanding it, you're misinterpreting it. Uh, it, seemed, it's, it seems that Jesus had an extremely high view. I mean, in fact, he viewed himself as the culmination of uh, the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. And then you take, it, you take passages like Luke 24, uh, when Jesus appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and says he opened up for them in, in the law and the prophets all the things concerning himself. So Jesus was just clearly saw himself in deep continuity uh, with the Hebrew Bible. He lived faithfully uh, as a Jew um, with the with the Bible as his authoritative scripture. So the point that you're yeah. drawing here is, is highlighting that when we're looking for uh, what is authoritative when it comes to orthodoxy, looking to Jesus first is kind of where we go. Yeah. And I, I think it's crucial also to underscore, I mean, I'm a big fan of philosophy and systematic theology. And I, I applaud efforts that try to use our minds to make sense of the diverse elements of scripture to kind of make it rational as much as we can. But ultimately, um, with regards to Jesus, I think going back to a passage like in, in uh, John 13, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Yeah. Yeah. To say that he is the truth, that really is crucial to understand that his revelation of himself is, is truth. We can't really distill it much more than that. We can try to represent it in, in kind of a logical way, but ultimately we have to kind of 
grasp that as something of a mystery, that a person is truth, not uh, things that we know about a person to be the truth. Yeah. Which I don't think is a totally subtle distinction, but I think it's an important one. Yeah, absolutely. Things are maybe slightly more tricky, but I don't, I don't think much more tricky when we then turn our attention to the New Testament. So Jesus, Jesus lived in a world in which um, the contours of the Old Testament were pretty well nailed down. Um, what was authoritative for the Jewish religion in terms of scripture was pretty uniformly accepted. But the New Testament didn't exist when, when Jesus lived. Right. Uh, of course, the Gospels themselves are accounts of his life written after the fact. Uh, and the epistles and everything after or reflections back on um, what Jesus taught uh, in this new kind of post-Pentecost church reality. Um, so what's the relationship between Je- Would Jesus have seen the New Testament as authoritative? Did, you know, did he anticipate it, do you think? That's an intriguing question. Um, how would I answer that? Uh, I'm sure he anticipated it. Um, I think that's probably fair to say. Yeah, I think it's fair to say. Um, And I think clearly um, uh, the the benefit we have of having the New Testament being written by the authors that were there was these were people who were present in his time and heard him speak and were the apostles and uh, his immediate successors. So I think, um, yeah, I think he he anticipated it. Uh, Would he have seen it as authoritative um, uh, I guess that's kind of a, a, I don't know how to pass judgment on what Jesus thought, but certainly <laughs> I think the, the early church fathers and, and then with its canonization in the early church councils, um, uh, I think people clearly thought that the early church fathers thought that. So, yeah. I think of, uh, you know, there's just these little hints, um, in John, I think it's like 14 through 17. He's kind of commissioning the apostles for what's going to happen. He's promising them the, the coming spirit. Um, but he has those passages about, he's going to bring to remembrance the things about him in the future. He's going to, there's just this picture of him sort of guiding and shaping their future ministry and teaching around him. Um, that I think is pretty instructive for us. Of course, their authoritative teaching is what ended up essentially as the new Testament, either their teaching directly or people who studied under them and learned from them. Maybe I can insert a quick point. Yeah. Um, an observation, um, I think one of the things we've highlighted, and particularly with regards to the verses that you addressed early on in, in Second Peter and in Galatians 1, um, where, where biblical authors use the word heresy and discuss uh, and, and use very strong language. I was surprised going back and rereading Second Peter 2 uh, about how harsh the language is around false teachers. And I think that distinction is important about not just people who are struggling through trying to understand the gospel, but people who are disseminating yeah. um, uh, unorthodox uh, heretical teaching. Um, so although that language is quite strong, and I think it needs to be, and it highlights the importance to the authors of the New Testament about how important it is to get your doctrine right, it's underscoring why it is important for us to have right doctrine. One of the things that I, I think in studying other discussions around uh, people as they wrestled through historically what what is true about God, what is true about his nature, what is true about the relationship of the Son to the Father. A lot of these discussions in the early church councils, I appreciated that uh, people, there was not a lot of malice. Uh, there wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of... People weren't... Um, I don't think maybe they would be best caricatured the way the Second Peter false teachers are as um, being full of ill will. 
motivated by greed, um, uh, intentionally seeking to persuade people. Um, uh, I think that there were some of these questions of orthodoxy really came from people wrestling through things that you and I would wrestle through. I mean, yeah. we leaned fairly heavily on things like Jesus Christ has both a fully divine and a fully human nature. The fact that people were trying to make sense of what scripture said around that, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to. And so I guess to underscore that although, although the language that Paul and Peter would use around heretics is pretty powerful and strong and does highlight the need for orthodoxy, um, it's good to also understand that the, uh, many people, as they were wrestling through uh, questions about understanding who God is, it, I think they, they can do so in ways that you and I would do. And it's, it's not a bad thing. So um, I think one of the podcasts you had me listen to is highlighting the distinction between what's orthodoxy as it relates to teachers and what's orthodoxy as it relates to people. Yeah. And I really loved that distinction because I think um, if I think about people in our church, not everybody in our church knows about the seven ecumenical councils or some of the early finer distinctions of Christian theology. And we would want them to agree that it's orthodoxy, but we would be willing to take the time to kind of work through that with them help them understand what the Bible says about something and using the, the Bible as the authoritative reference that we come back to. Absolutely. But, uh, but there's a distinction there between people who are, you know, standing up in the pulpit saying Jesus was created and not existed from before all time. I mean, they, yeah. we would hold a totally different standard for people who are teaching yeah. false doctrine as opposed to wrestling through an understanding of what is orthodoxy. That's uh, such a good point. Yeah. And probably a great way to, in these early minutes of this conversation, frame it so that if you're listening and you feel like, man, I don't feel as theologically <laughs> sharp as I ought to be, which is probably everyone both having this conversation and <laughs> listening to this conversation. Um, the, the point is not like, oh no, I'm accursed in the words of Paul right now. It's their, their concern certainly was with teachers, not with honest mm-hmm. wrestling, I would say. And you asked me early on, too, about at the beginning of the podcast, why, why is right doctrine important? Um, and one of the analogies that came to my mind early on was, um, maybe I've drawn it from a couple separate streams. I'm thinking specifically of C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, and then also from actually John Piper's Desiring God, uh, and their discussions around what's the point of morality. So uh, kind of a, a similar question about orthodoxy. Why is morality important? And I think a lot of people, when they hear morality, they think about a severe God handing down dictates that are meant to frustrate our natural inclinations. Sure. But, but I, I love the way that those two authors in particular develop a strain of thought that highlights that, in fact, the purpose of God's morality is actually to maximize our joy. It's uh, utilizing divine wisdom to counter our sinful nature to actually lead us into flourishing. I think it's similar with orthodoxy. I think uh, orthodoxy is not a, a tool that we use to wield against opponents, uh, but I think the importance of understanding right doctrine is that it gives us a full revelation of God and and allows us to worship him more fully, and it helps us understand uh, the, are the practicalities of the implications for our faith, um, and it draws us into deeper relationship with him. So I don't, it's not, uh, it's not just a history lesson. Yeah. It's a way to, uh, A.W. Tozer said, you know, the most important thing about, uh, us is what we know about God. Yes. And the degree that we know him accurately. And that's a reflection of our orthodoxy. So I see orthodoxy in the same way that C.S. Lewis and, uh, Piper talk about morality. I see orthodoxy as an invitation to know God in his fullness, 
um, in the in the ways that he's revealed himself to us. And so I think it's an invitation into relationship. Absolutely. Man, that's so well said. Well, just to, to put a final pin in the, in the conversation about the Bible, I guess what we're trying to get to is Jesus has authorized the Old Testament. He seemed to be authorizing the New Testament. And certainly by the time that Paul was writing his letters, there's this beginning to be this view of, okay, there's something special about these works that are kind of flowing from the apostolic teaching. Some of them are called scripture by other letters that were ultimately canonized as scripture. And we have this view vision of like what Paul's putting forward that all scripture is breathed out by God. He's probably has it in mind in second Timothy there, the old Testament. But now that you're seeing some of these new Testament books begin to be considered scriptures, it becomes a helpful um, kind of grid um, where they saw, yeah, I think, I think God, the Holy Spirit's, kind of providential hand kind of at work as these books were being written. So uh, that's a long-winded way now, a 10-minute, 15-minute way of saying we think Jesus had a high view of Scripture, and he, yes. would, he would lead us as him being the perfect kind of revelation of God. He would lead us to also deeply, deeply trust and submit to the revelation of God found in the written Scriptures Absolutely. of the Old and New Testament. So in a sense... You know, the old phrase, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. It's kind of the right posture. Um, Biblical theology is what we're after. We think that's what Jesus wants us to be after. But the reason that that phrase frustrates everybody is because it's just not that simple. Hmm. Uh, How many different people can read the same biblical passage and come to utterly different interpretation? So we we have to have some kind of criteria. once we have a Bible in our hands that we trust, actually, like, how do we, how do we understand our interpretations? How do we make sure that they're kind of in bounds? That just becomes a whole different complex conversation. One interesting and helpful idea that's kind of emerged from, from church history, uh, I, I, I like it a lot, is the Methodists that ended up coming up with what they called the Wesleyan quadrilateral that urged Christians to filter their theology through basically primarily scripture and then tradition, reason, and experience. And I, th- I think those are all four very valid avenues for theology. They just have to be regimented in proper order. Um, so we've discussed scripture. I think the orthodoxy conversation brings in the tradition side uh, mm-hmm. pretty strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the ideas that was really helpful for me was, was reading C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity when he talks about chronological snobbery, which is such a great term. I love that phrase. Uh, but basically the idea that we assume our modern understandings and interpretations are, are de facto better, more faithful, more educated, more mm-hmm. sophisticated than what came before. Um, and he, he does a pretty good job of establishing, like, that's really a pretty invalid assumption to make. It seems that when there's the great minds of Christian theology um, coming together and coming to uniform conclusions about matters, that's something we should pay attention to. It seems like it'd be pretty arrogant to just kind of reject out of hand what's been consistent throughout church history. I've also heard it said that novelty is not a likely criterion for truth when it comes yes. to theology. And I think trying to understand why that might be the case. I, I like how G.K. Chesterton in Orthodoxy speaks to it. Uh, and he's coming from the perspective of Catholicism and I think trying to advocate for traditionalism. But um, but I, he speaks about it in very democratic terms. He says we should listen to all of the voices of history of all time to help avoid uh, the particular biases that we might be blind to that we ah, have, so which good. I really like. 
Yeah, I love that. So our attention now, if we're going to talk about tradition as one of the kind of hopefully helpful guiding principles for theology, the, we now turn directly to the issue of orthodoxy. You've already mentioned it. Orthodoxy as a, as a word merely means right belief. But there are different ways that people have, con- have conceived of Christian orthodoxy. The more broad definition that people probably just use a bit more casually is kind of like, you know what, pretty, what most Christians have believed for most of history Mm-hmm. It's kind of the the general blanket term. And that is a, a, a helpful thing when you're wanting to sort through a particular issue. It is helpful to consider, has the church been unified throughout all of its history on this? When did divergences appear? Or that, was that recently? That's telling for us, or it ought to be. Um, but, but I think that can also obscure, there's probably a, a more helpful and technical sense to the word orthodoxy um, that... We, we should probably discuss as well. When we think of orthodoxy narrowly, or may, maybe like very specifically, what are we talking about? One way that people conceive orthodoxy is by referencing uh, what are called the seven ecumenical councils, uh, which is, I was fascinated spending some time exploring those in a little bit more detail these past few weeks. Uh, you know, they roughly, they were ecumenical in that they attempted to gather in a, a large cross-section of, of the bishops of the time to really speak on the issues at hand. From the 300s on through, I mean, there's been very recent councils, but what are considered the seven ecumenical councils up through the 700s, 800s, um, a lot of people do look back at those times and say, hey, those seven councils, some people say maybe the first four councils, those are kind of what really are a common core center of Orthodox Christian belief, things that we, we all agreed on before maybe started chopping up theology into finer details. And, and certainly before the schism with the major schisms, the, yeah. the East and the West Church. Um, that being said, clearly there were people who peeled off all along the way. So after the first two councils, the Church of the East said, hey, we're, we can't go past, past this point um, in terms of their debates, I think that time around. Uh, that was Nestorianism, I believe so. Nestorianism, yeah. uh, and then uh, the uh, Oriental Orthodox Church. They stuck around for three councils, then took out. So, you know, I think there's going to be divisions along the way in terms of consensus. Not everyone had a consensus, but by and large, uh, the issues relating to primary fundamental questions of the nature of salvation and the nature of God, specifically Jesus, His relationship to the Father the relationship of the two of those to the Holy Spirit. Those are things that got ironed out over centuries, but I would say is what we typically look back to and say, this is the common consensus uh, validated by scripture, supported by scripture, but also as we wrestle through its implications, this this is core Christian Orthodox belief. Yeah. So it would be false to say that there was absolute unanimity on all those things through the period of the seven ecumenical councils, but it feels fairly reasonable to say there was pretty broad consensus um, that was probably splintering as we go throughout that period. Um, I think the question of Arianism itself was interesting. So yeah, sure. the Nicene Creed, one of the first councils in 325, uh, was convened really as among other things to talk about this guy named Arius who came from Alexandria. And he had ideas about who Jesus was that a lot of people found very appealing. Um, And it was after uh, extensive debate and discussion 
Um, a lot of people who initially were tempted by his thoughts after they kind of came to process it and discuss its entailments were able to come around and say, hey, I can see that what that entails is actually something that undermines what the Bible taught about salvation. And if I recall correctly, just thinking about consensus, um, there were 300 plus bishops in attendance and only Arius and maybe one or two other people ended up saying, oh, we disagree. Um, and they went on to be highly influential. The debate around Arianism didn't just end with the Council of sure, Nicaea. Sure. But by and large, there's a good example of unanimity. There is the vast majority of people uh, were able to say, hey, this seems like a fairly consensus issue. Not, um, It's not going to go on to produce a lot, a lot of a schism or a lot of splinter factions. Yeah. Probably some of the documents that were produced that would be helpful for people to think through and read as, as you have time. Uh, probably a, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and then there were a couple revisions to the Nicene Creed, um, and the Chalcedonian formulation that was really a, a beautiful document, kind of trying to parse out Jesus's relation, the relationship in Jesus between his humanity and his divinity, mm-hmm. and ended up being kind of the pretty standard Christian formulation of how we understand to be both fully God, fully man, how that works and why it's important that you don't let aspects of that tension crumble. I'd like to hit a couple points here on why a few more reasons why we should take these ideas seriously, not as scripture we're, we're, we're not here saying that these documents or results of these councils were to be on equal footing with scripture. Uh, but, but they're ver- worth paying very close attention to one uh, just chronologically, it's, it's important to note, like, within the first few centuries after Jesus, a lot of this was happening. And so there's just the idea that the apostles' teaching was perhaps pretty pretty carefully preserved during that point. There's not so much history and time elapsed where, you know, in Nicaea, you've just got a few generations, really, of people who are discipled by the apostles, who are discipled by them, discipled by them, discipled by them coming and making these theological proclamations. I think that's significant. Secondarily, there's the idea that the conclusions of these early creeds, again, not uniformly and universally accepted, but extremely broadly accepted Mm -hmm. across church history now for basically 1,700 years and across East and West, all kinds of cultures, um, that's pretty significant. It's hard to imagine someone writing a theological document now or a, a creedal statement that could have that kind of longevity. Wow. Like, what a feat to write something that well, lasts the test that, uh, that long. I mean, I think the, it's interesting one of the points you make. So um, you highlighted specifically Methodism and what was the term? The quadrilateral? The Wesleyan quadrilateral. The quadrilateral. It was emphasizing tradition. You know, typically I think most people who are out there who consider themselves Protestants um, as they draw distinctions between themselves and then traditions such as Roman Catholicism, would tend to say, uh, I mean, this was the point of the Reformation, sola scriptura, we are going to define our belief system based on what scripture says about something. It doesn't matter what people at that point, you know, 1,200 years prior, say about this, unless we can see that it corresponds with scripture. So I think... Yeah. There's an, em- an emphasis, a current that comes to us as uh, people who inherit the Protestant tradition to, in some ways, undermine tradition uh, because of the, what the nature of what took place in the Reformation. And yet you're citing a Protestant um, uh, confession or, um, that uh, highlights the importance of tradition. So I, yeah. for me, what that underscores is... I, I, I still hold to the Sola Scriptura. Um, as do I. I. And I would probably say that uh, I would need to test 
the results of the councils against what scripture says and want to be fairly persuaded of that. Um, but I think what you're saying is, you know, there's a certain amount of honor or at least respect you need to have for, for these traditional elements and you need to do your due diligence. I think um, probably the wrong approach that some of us might be tempted to take would be to say, because these things are in tradition, they're irrelevant. We don't need to care about yeah. them. These were people who were wrestling through really crucial things that, honestly, if it was framed us, we would wrestle through too. And so I think uh, honor, taking the time to honor as, as Protestants uh, history and what history has to say and where people came down on one or another side of the debate is kind of our due diligence. Being yeah. a Protestant doesn't mean... Uh, issuing history. It means embracing it, but contextualizing it through the gospel. And tied to that is this idea of doing theology, the importance of doing theology in the context of community. What is the local church like, if not significantly for that purpose, right? Like getting people to, to discuss these things together and to let the spirit move and work through the plurality of, of voices there. But this is just an extension, I think, of that idea of Doing, doing theology in community across time, mm-hmm. almost. Um, again, that's not to say that every conclusion reached by the community is going to ultimately be proven biblical or correct or whatever. But wow, it's, it's a significant resource mm-hmm. for, for doing this. And we'd be, um, my contention is that we'd be foolish to just ignore it out of hand. But I think your point is very well taken that sola scriptura, I, yeah, I'd, that's a very important idea and concept for me that the scripture alone is our final arbiter and determiner for theology. But that's not in direct con- uh, conflict with the idea that, yeah, we should listen to voices from history and sharp people who spend a lot of time and energy wading through these things. I mean, a lot of the reformers were quoting church fathers in their original arguments Absolutely. as their means of reform. So I think yeah. that's a good point to that effect. Absolutely. So, there's orthodoxy. Is that clear as mud, everybody? Hopefully. <laughs> um, so in sum, there's broad orthodoxy. People talk about orthodoxy. That's kind of like what's, what's been broadly, generally, the conclusions of the church throughout history on, on given subjects. Then there's this more narrow term, which is what were kind of the, the, consensus, the consensus documents and ideas produced during the, first, during the period before the major church breakups, schisms happened. Um, then there's the question of, okay, so that's orthodoxy. What's heresy? There's just as much debate about how we ought to define heresy. One, one I'll put forward that I, I like, and you know, it's, we're, we're just throwing it out there. You can, you can like it, you can dislike it, but here it is. David, uh, Christy Murray, he says we should kind of view departures from orthodoxy in two categories. The first is what he calls heresy. And he says, Heresy is basically to reject or contradict anything outlined in those early ecumenical creeds. That's what he would say. So when there was this broad consensus from the church and they declared something orthodoxy, if you reject it, you're a heretic. <laughs> that's, that's Christy Murray's argument. But he says not everything falls into that category, of course. And he, he says we should have a softer category that he wants to call heterodoxy. Um, and some people squabble with those two terms. Um, but so this is his terminology, not mine, but, um, so heterodoxy for him is a belief that departs from just the commonly accepted teaching throughout church history. Um, so I, I guess one of the points he's trying to make is that not every theological disagreement between believers should get the label of heretic thrown around. Do you feel like that? You hear that a lot? Is that something practically you feel like you hear? 
I feel, you know, I, to my detriment, probably, I follow a lot of the Christian blogosphere, <laughs> and, and I am shocked at times how liberally the word heretic is thrown around. It, it feels sometimes like if you don't buy into the particulars of a particular denomination's, I don't know, beliefs on issue A, B, or C, you're a heretic, we're cutting you off from civilized Christian society, and let's burn your books, almost. I, I, I do... I, in some mm. theological circles, I do get that sense. I don't feel like it's a problem at Door of Hope. Mm. I, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone call someone else a heretic at Door of Hope. What about you? Have you heard it around like our, our particular church community? Her- heresy being thrown out perhaps too quickly as a label for yeah, someone. Yeah, I have not. Um, I think there is definitely a strength to the approach we take at Door of Hope. Uh, which is to keep the main thing the main thing, that idea of keeping the primacy of the gospel squarely in the, in the crosshairs of what we discuss, what we talk about. And I don't think that that in itself tends to generate a lot of conflict. We, we, our goal as a church is to not focus on what we consider to be secondary issues. And I think that is good in that it produces a lot of unity and you know, man, how much does Paul talk about unity throughout the entirety of his epistles? Man, so much. Jesus speaks about unity. If we should be one with each other, he's one with the Father. Um, uh, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, there's just such an admonition throughout the entirety of the New Testament that what we're called to is unity. Uh, Ephesians, Ephesians 4, uh, it just it's everywhere. And so I feel like that's what has led to our approach at Door of Hope being a good one. By the same token... Uh, it's, it, I think the danger that we run in kind of drawing that distinction is not recognizing the importance of many secondary issues. And yeah. I think this probably gets into what you're saying about, well, how do we label those and what, what beliefs uh, uh, should kind of cause us to break fellowship? What is truly, what goes in those categories of primary and secondary issues and what do we debate about? So no, I have not heard the term heretic thrown around a lot or adore hope, but I think it's because of how we've structured the conversation. Yeah. I would just hope that... Maybe we should call more people heretics. <laughs> probably not helpful. <laughs> probably not following Paul's admonition to unity. I really liked the quote, and this is a common quote that I, I read was falsely attributed to Augustine. Um, but apparently is uh, more properly attributable to uh, a, a German Lutheran theologian in the 16th century that in essentials, unity and non-essentials, liberty and all things charity. I think uh, anybody who's thrown around the term heretic pretty loosely is really not being attentive to God's admonition of love as the primary virtue that should govern all of these conversations. Anyway, the, my point being that um, although we don't throw the term heretic around a lot, I do hope that we don't see that that's not coming from uh, an unwillingness to really get into some secondary issues and understand their importance and implications for our community and our, our life and how we relate to the world. Man, that's so well said. And a perfect transition into a, an idea that was really powerful for me. So in, in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, what he's trying to do is is more or less, and he probably wouldn't I don't think he has a one-to-one relationship in mind between his idea of, quote, mere Christianity and orthodoxy, as we've narrowly described it. But his goal in the book is to, is to try to give as basic a Christianity as possible a description. So he's trying to call people into basic Christianity, but his, his point is not that people would stay there satisfied with that. And here's what he says. He says his mere Christianity is more like, quote, a hall out of which doors open into several rooms. If I can bring anyone into the hall, I've done what I attempted, but 
It's in the rooms, not the hall, where there are fires and chairs and meals. So for him, the rooms are going to be the, the more specific, robust doctrinal statements and confessions that belong to specific churches or denominations. So he, he's not trying to argue that let's just, let's just live in, in, in the vaguest, like lowest common denominator Christianity we can. He's saying, mm-hmm. no, you have to get more specific because mm-hmm. the Bible gets more specific about things than the issues of general orthodoxy and general Christianity. So how do you um, think we walk that balance uh, at Door of Hope, given how we've structured the idea of simplicity and keeping Christ the focus? Do we run a danger of living in the hallway as opposed to what he describes as a very cozy room? Yeah. I know. It makes, <laughs> makes you want to go into I that really room. I really want to go into that room. Fires. There's fires <laughs> in there. Um, anecdotally, it feels to me like like... We don't stay exclusively in the realm of general Christianity. Here, here's one way I put it. Uh, I read a book recently by a guy named Carl Truman, who's who's basically arguing for churches to get much more robust doctrinal statements as mm. part of their membership processes. Mm-hmm. And his point is like, look, every teaching pastor or teaching pastoral team or elder team has a lot of theological commitments, and like uh, the problem is when they're unspoken, mm-hmm. and we just. We have a very narrow statement, say, on our webpage, but we're preaching from a much more detailed kind of handshake agreement in the Mm -hmm. back room. His point is like, well, why are we not putting it out there so people know fully what they're buying into? Uh, Maybe there's, you know, biblical misinterpretation that ought to be corrected. And I was pretty compelled by that. Mm. Um, I'm also compelled by Door of Hope's attempt to kind of cast a wide net and try Mm -hmm. to create a space where people across... Um, theological lines, Christian theological lines can find a home mm-hmm. together. Um, so I don't know. I, I I wonder sometimes if we are perhaps too vague. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling now. What do you think? Yeah, well, um, I don't want to jump ahead uh, to something that you might want to develop more fully, but uh, I think the idea of a common denominator of what we consider to be orthodoxy is a beautiful thing to unite around. I think I think denominations are kind of have this built in, right? So um, if you are Anglican and you've got these 39 articles, uh, if you are a Lutheran, you have, you have these developed confessions um, that really are more the meat on the bones so that people don't, who are involved with those, they have a ready access point. They can go to a a, a, a book of church doctrine and kind of readily access that. So there's not any sense of a bait and switch or feeling kind of misled. So I think that's helpful. It's much more difficult for unaffiliated non-denominational Protestant church groups to do that. And so I think it is great that we can unite around fairly minimalist stripped down doctrine. And I, what I like about our church is I, I feel like it hasn't produced much in the way of dissension. I think people yeah. feel that admonition to unity Again, my hope is that it's not simply becoming because people aren't willing to explore these other details in, in detail. And if they would, maybe exactly. that would produce conflict. But um, but those are healthy things to wrestle through. And so I think, um, I, I don't know, I guess what I'm also responding to is this f- fear I've heard mentioned of, of when you're seeking lowest common denominator uh, orthodoxy, um, you're, you're, you're really papering over a lot of history and you're... you're um, it can be so stripped down that that kind of the theology that you're teaching becomes uh, irrelevant and unhelpful. Yeah. I don't feel that's been the case at our church, but I, I, I'm cautious as a leader of the church to ensure that we 
we engage the robustness of what scripture has to say and, and are really truly trying to wrestle through its implications for how we practically love the people in our city. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really well said. Well, we're probably going to have to pick up the pace for the last couple things we wanted to discuss, but that's okay. Let's do it. Um, let's do it. So the, the question becomes uh, at this point, if, if Lewis is right and we shouldn't be content just with, um, the quote unquote essentials of the faith, but we need to really step into the room, so to speak. Uh, how do we do that? How do we determine what issues are absolutely central, which ones are secondary, which ones are less than secondary. And one of the most helpful grids I've come across is one we've used with our leaders and in conversation around door of hope quite a bit. It comes from Gary Brashears at Western seminary. Basically he sees a four tiered grid for thinking about theological certainty. So his first, his top level is what he calls beliefs to die for. And, and in that category, he'd say these are the things that are essential for salvation, plus really the essentials of, of Christian orthodoxy. These are things like the inspiration and authority of Scripture, the Trinity, that Jesus is Lord, um, and his substitutionary death, uh, doctrine by salvation of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Just absolute core things that you would be willing to die for before you denied Secondly, he, he says there are beliefs to divide for. And so he says these are so central to the life of the church that, that believers with differing views, they really would struggle to be a part of the same local church community or, or denomination. So in that, it might be things like the nature of the sacraments, like baptism or communion. So um, not everyone would probably put baptism in that category, but, but many would. You know, baptism is one of the central uh, sacraments, ordinances that Jesus gave the church. And at Door of Hope, we practice believer's baptism. Um, there are others who are very convinced that infant baptism ought to be done. Um, and that could rise to the level of, well, I'm, I just can't be a part of a church that doesn't view that super important practice that Jesus left for the church the same way that I do. That's just one example. Um, the nature and mission of the church might be another. There's all kinds of things we might put in there. But- I was just going to highlight, I think, with regard to that list, um, maybe with the exception slightly of this question of the security of the believer, I think many of the distinctives that are included in that list are things that affect ecclesiology, the idea yeah. of how church functions. And so yeah. it's just an interesting thought. It's, it, there are very practical implications for um, a church that uh, believes that the nature of the mission of the church is social justice. Um, and you can imagine how that will radically impact the, the day-to-day life, the prioritization of the budget. Just how it, oh, very, there's very practical implications for these beliefs that are less focused maybe on, uh, I, like, I couldn't understand how you see this in Scripture. or um, So it's not dividing in that way, but it's a question of emphasis and prioritization and, and practical function. And so, I, anyway, I like how that list kind of highlights that distinction is that, it, it would just be very hard to make this this church work yeah. um, if practically and functionally if, unless we did it differently. Yeah, absolutely. So then he has a third tier that he calls um, beliefs worth debating for, beliefs to debate for. And so these are significant, but they, they don't limit Christians from working together, worshiping together in the same local church, even though a few people might have disagreement about it. So Gary, I I think these are ones that Gary put in there, Um, like the age of the earth, how we understand the early chapters of Genesis, 
Um, there can be real, it's, it matters. I, I think it matters. I think it's worth really diving into. Uh, but hopefully people would be able to say, you know, I can, I can worship alongside someone who holds a different view than me. And we may not, we may not agree, uh, but we can, we can recognize that as not something that ought to cause division amongst us. Um, convictions around, uh, worship and preaching styles, you know, for some people that might go, well, if it's not this sort of worship, I can't be a part of that church, but other people might go, you know what? I'm willing to, 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 to submit my preferences to what's healthier for the broader congregation and what's maybe strategic for the city or the neighborhood I find myself in. Um, particulars of the end times is one I think that falls into this category. Certainly does for me. I think uh, that seems to be the spirit at Door of Hope as well, that the end times, they matter. Jesus has spoken. The, the scriptures have spoken about you know the way history is going to play out. Um, but... Uh, there's, we, most, most people I know around Dwarf Hope would say there's not total clarity on how all that, uh, how all that plays out. And so we're, we, I think you'll find a pretty wide diversity of views along those things. And I really haven't come across many people in our church who have, um, who have wanted to make that an issue to divide over. I don't know if you have. No, I have not. I don't think I've come across it once actually, Mm. now that I think about it, um, so again, hopefully that's not because people are saying, well, it doesn't matter. We shouldn't think about it. We shouldn't care. Mm. Hopefully people do care and they want to know, mm. but they're willing to say, yeah, this is just not something that the Bible is particularly clear on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm very comfortable being in community group and fellowship with people who think differently about it. Um, I realize that in the interest of time, we may need to not include this next part of the conversation, sure. but maybe just a quick few minutes on a question, sure. an observation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, 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 when, when you ask the question, what should we feel okay breaking fellowship over? It kind of, it's part of a large, larger conversation about when we see movement between church bodies within, say, the city of Portland, which yeah. I think is a fairly common thing that we see. Yeah. I'm curious, first of all, do you think that tends to happen because of questions of orthodoxy in your experience? Or does it come from somewhere else? Um... I think I've seen it related to questions of orthodoxy a few times, just anecdotally mm-hmm. in relationship with people. I think there are people who've, um, what would be some of the issues that people may have um, felt I, it necessary to divide? I, over? I can think of someone who divided over the belief that salvation is found exclusively in Christ and mm-hmm. have moved toward uh, more universalist leaning churches. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one for me. That's an issue of orthodoxy. That's, that's a die for. for That's me. a die for. For me, That's yes. A die for. Um, I would die for that belief. I think Jesus meant what he said when he called himself the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but through him. That's that first category in top the cat- list. Top, top category. category. Yes. Um, so sadly, I've, I've known people that have, have gone to other churches that, that um, I would say are not in accord with historic Christian orthodoxy. You would even say heresy. I would call that heresy, yes. Not saying that lightly. Yes, not hopefully not flippantly or lightly. Um, there, there's another group, I, and we'll, we'll use a, another controversial issue here. I remember a few people um, leaving whenever Door of Hope came to its conclusion about women in leadership at the church. And so uh, for those listening, Door of Hope kind of holds what we might call soft complementarian um, view on this issue so that we say women are fully created in the image of God, uh, equally gifted, um, 
by the spirit to minister in the church, but that the role of elder is reserved for men. Um, so hopefully every other ministry role is being exercised by women. Uh, but we, we, we think the scripture is consistent in holding that office of elder for men. When, when door of hope came to that conclusion, of course, there were people who were frustrated, um, from both sides, people who thought we were Mm -hmm. perhaps too, too liberal in the idea that we're open to women teaching on a Sunday, um, women even leading community groups, Mm -hmm. um, that men are part of. Um, so people were frustrated by that, but then on the other side, people who thought, wow, we, I, we really think women should be elders. And so they left for other churches. And so that's a Brashears category. I think too. I think that's a category too. Yeah. And I think it should be, I mean, cause like we were saying to divide for, um, I, well, not, maybe not that it should be, but it's reasonable that it is though. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of people I do know that, that don't personally resonate or hold the view that door of hope holds Mm -hmm. that say, well, this is, this has not risen to divide for status for me. They probably consider it a debate for it's, so it seems like that category of divide for is really a subjective choice about how much you're willing to tolerate. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, that's um, intriguing. Yeah. I, I, I think it is intriguing. And so there are probably plenty of people um, on that particular mm-hmm. issue of women in leadership um, who are at Door of Hope. They, they experience some tension mm-hmm. with the view that we have, but they, for them, it doesn't rise to that second category. It's probably more a category three issue for them. Um, are there people that you know that have left for category three issues? So some of which are included here, convictions around worship and preaching styles, for example. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember specifically when Tim Mackey stepped off the preaching team, st- stepped off the elder team altogether. Um, people were like, oh, Tim's preaching was the thing that really kept me rooted to this church. And they left. Uh, I, I think they would say... Um, I guess for them that was a, an issue too thing, but really what it is is it's, it wasn't a theological issue with the church. It wasn't, um, yeah, it was it was merely I'd, stylistic. Stylistic, yeah, it was stylistic. Mm. It was aesthetic. Um, so, and do you feel like that is again something for which it is reasonable to choose to leave your current church and go to find another church? Reasonable's an interesting way to phrase it. Um, yeah. What do you think? I think that once we get into category three, we're not talking about questions of orthodoxy. Right. And so we're getting in more to, to questions about why people are in the churches that they're in. Yeah. Um, and so I think that I've spoken with people who have left uh, Door of Hope to go to churches where they enjoy more charismatic worship office styles. And I don't see that as being a problem. But what I would, what I want to underscore for the purpose of the podcast would be to say, uh, what what breaks my heart is when people um, are are sundering fellowship for issues that are primarily related to not embracing scriptural call to unity. So I think some people leave churches because they have hurt feelings. I think some people leave churches because they're not reconciled in broken relationships. And I think people are not taking advantage of particularly the admonitions uh, in Ephesians 4 uh, and Matthew Matthew 18 about dealing with brokenness in relationship. So I don't know if that's something that's going to be totally relevant for the purpose of the podcast, but I think it's just helpful in this discussion. To me, it's one of the more relevant things that I've dealt with in the past year or two as it relates to 
what is our unity, what ties us together, yeah. what takes us apart. And I think what I appreciate in the discussion about uh, the early church councils, again, is that the, many of these people were very well-intentioned and they were really struggling to come to an agreement. And I think when, when ultimately when decisions were made, it was felt to be questions of orthodoxy because it had important entailments for, for understanding God. Uh, but the heart there was really embracing the heart of we want to do this together. Yeah. Um, and I would say, just I would just really want to underscore that for the purposes of all relationships in the church, that conflicts that arise, and maybe one of the things that would prevent terms like heresy getting thrown around too lightly, would be to really under, ask the question, A, am I loving this person? And am I really yeah. seeking to understand? Yeah. Or am I just kind of wounded and hurt? And what I need to do is go to that person and, and seek reconciliation. So yeah. that may not be appropriate for the podcast, but I think well, it's... For those of you listening, I I think I can guarantee this will make it in the podcast. That was a really good discussion. Uh, Seth Seth just aside[d] his way into one of the more profound things that's been said in this conversation. So everybody, please go memorize <laughs> Ephesians four and commit it to how you relate to the people that you love at church. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I I think that is very well said. Yeah. So to return to the question, is it reasonable for someone to leave Door of Hope because Tim Mackey is no longer <laughs> preaching? Yes or no? Oh, I asked you the question. <laughs> I love I, I love Tim, but I'm a huge fan of Josh, and yeah, so for me, oh, it's sure. a, like as a personal question, like, oh, man, I'm 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 I found the church when it was Josh, and that's a big reason why I'm still here. So, um, but I I think that uh, people should go where they're being fed, um, and I don't think I don't, I think it sh- people should be pretty. There should be a check in people's spirit if they find that they're moving church to church. Yes. Um, for issues that are not related to orthodoxy. Maybe that's the way I would phrase it. Yes. I don't think it's bad to find a best fit. And if there's a place where you're thriving and you're being fed and you're in community and you're known um, and you're being known and you're sticking out through tough times, that's that can be totally healthy. That's fine. You know, try a couple things on. But I, I do think, you know, it, in some ways, this is an artifact of contemporary life, contemporary church. Yes. You know, how many churches do you all, do, do I, drive by on my way to Door of Hope, which when in times past, people went to the church that was closest and they were compelled by virtue of geographic limitation and almost necessity yeah. to work out their issues in their local congregation. So I think, I think, again, it's totally fine and it's reasonable to find a best fit for you in terms of yes. where you've got good friends and where you're being fed. But be, be cautious that if you're moving in between churches frequently or from church to church, ask yourself the question of, am I pursuing uh, uh, unity the way that the gospel compels me to? Am I working at reconciliation or am I leaving because of woundedness that I haven't reconciled? Because I think that there would, there would be a check in my spirit for people for whom I, I, I think that can be the case. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Okay, good. I, We're in agreement. We're in agreement. We're in, agreement. We're in unity Uni- on that. Unanimity. And uh, I'm glad I just made you answer your own question. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> I do like to talk. <laughs> uh, so just real quickly, the fourth category, um, it's probably the least important, um, as naturally, beliefs to decide for is what he calls it. So these are things that are, um, and they're just less significant than the debates for, um, they are, are maybe so insignificant or vague in scripture that it just, it doesn't spark much discussion or debate. Uh, that doesn't mean it can't be interesting. If it's in the Bible, it's worth thinking about, of course. Um, but it, it's just the, the sort of things where 
Gary, Gary says it this way, for these, acceptance is a virtue and legalism is actually a real danger to the community. Okay, so those are the four categories. Hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. The last question is, how do we actually take a individual theological idea and put it in one of those categories? Um, one of the, one of the more helpful little breakdowns I saw was from a guy uh, named Eric Thones, I think is how you pronounce his name. And I've kind of summarized, condensed his, his criteria into four. Number one, he would say, we should ask how clearly frequently and with what significance does the Bible address this doctrine? Is this all over the scriptures? Uh, do the biblical authors emphasize it? Do they, uh, do they cast it as something really important? Is it clear? If the higher you answer, the more often you answer yes to those kinds of questions, the higher it's probably going to go up the list. Um, secondarily, you would ask how relevant to the essence of the gospel and the character of God is this doctrine? I mean, if you, if you lose this doctrine, does it begin to, to muddy how the gospel works, how salvation works? Does it begin to muddy who God is, um, in some substantial way, uh, that would push it up the list if so. Uh, number three, how does this doctrine affect other doctrines that are downstream from it? So you, you don't want to just think of the doctrine in isolation, but are there other important aspects of Christian theology that if you, if you pull this Jenga piece out, something more important falls? Um, that takes some pretty deep reflection to mm-hmm. actually, actually see those connections sometimes, but I, I thought that was a really brilliant insight mm-hmm. that he had there. Um, what's, what's this doctrine's effect on other doctrines? Um, and then fourth, um, he's tying it back to the kind of history of theology that we started our conversation with. Um, has there been a general consensus throughout church history amongst Christians on this doctrine? If so, um, we, we kind of ignore that at our, at our own risk. That's not, again, to say that they are ult- the ultimate authority to answer these questions, but they are a, a significant piece of the puzzle, I think. Want to illustrate uh, that stratification or those kind of four criteria with an example? Yeah. So let's see here. Well, let's let's just take uh, take the idea of Jesus, of God accomplishing salvation on behalf of His people. I mean, that's something that you go to Genesis three. You've got the this first promise of uh, of this the snake crusher who's going to come and who's going to be wounded, but is ultimately going to going to kind of vanquish evil. Um, you see throughout the Old Testament the, the inability of God's people to to keep the law, the necessity of the sacrificial system, which, you know, there's nothing supernatural, inherently supernatural about killing an animal for your sin. But it's it's once again a reminder of, of God's provision um, for the sin, uh, all the way up through the prophets, the ministry of Jesus himself, culminating, of course, in the cross. I mean, this is just perhaps the most substantial biblical theme of God's goodness, even in the face of human sin and him providing a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could think of countless stories where this happens. I just I'll tell me how you think of Abraham and Isaac and God's provision of the ram there, like all, all kinds of uh, things where man, God's enacting his salvation on behalf of his people who cannot do it for themselves. I mean, that that's, gospel heart stuff that mm-hmm. I think meets all of these criteria and would, would uh, work its way up into the, into a die for category for me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. So, so I don't know, Seth, what do you, what's one that comes to mind for you to kind of put through this grid? Yeah, I think, um, well, I, 
I used to be part of a church 15, 20 years ago that, uh, and it was just a few years old. I remember being taken aback, a little bit surprised that there were some people who were willing to divide um, and leave the church at, at the time specifically because they believed in infant baptism. Um, and I think that, again, being very sympathetic, if, if you're someone who holds that conviction, and there are lots of people who are Orthodox Christians who do hold that conviction, um, and you think that your child's salvation in some ways contingent on this act that you do. I understand the motivation where it comes from, but I'm, I'm personally someone who believes in a believer's baptism, um, which is what we hold at Door of Hope. I think that applying these four criteria, I don't think that you see a lot in Scripture about this. If anything, I, I can't think of many places where you see infant baptism described in Scripture, if the first criteria. Um, how relevant to the essence of the gospel and the character of God is this doctrine? Uh, how does this doctrine affect other doctrines that are downstream of it? I, it is one of those things, clear, that impacts ecclesiology and how a church functions. Yeah. So, so again, using uh, Gary's category of stratification, this would be a potentially a belief t- to divide for, but but I'd say it falls into that category and not a category of number one importance Absolutely. precisely because it doesn't meet all these criteria the same way um, yeah. your example did. And, I mean, church history, there's pretty pretty varied um, different periods have leaned different ways on that. Um, but certainly nothing like uniformity throughout church history. When you think about views of baptism, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. Um, so I'll, I'll just read, maybe we'll finish with this. I, I like the way Eric Thones kind of summed it up with a couple sentences here. He says, we should consider the cumulative weight of these criteria when determining the relative importance of particular beliefs. For example, just the fact that a doctrine may go against the general consensus among believers does not necessarily mean it's wrong, although that might add some weight to the argument against it. All the categories should be considered collectively in determining how important an issue is for the Christian faith. Um, I think that's well said. So, gosh, this is a shotgun blast, if there ever was one. <laughs> Thank you for listening, if you've made it, if, if you've made it this far. Um, we know that these are big issues. They have lots of different implications and we've had to just skirt across the surface of most of this. So, um, we hope that the resources included at the end, um, are helpful. Uh, if you want to go deeper again, um, as one of the pastors at the church, I'm available. I have lots of time to meet with people. If you want to get together and hash this out, let's do it. Seth has time as well to meet with people. Um, let's, let's have these conversations and let's dive deeper together as we try to be a church that, um, that honors God in how we think about him Mm -hmm. and how we lead others to think about him. And I guess my final contribution would be just a reiteration of that statement from before in essentials, unity and non-essentials, liberty and all things cherry that we really need to let as, as we wrestle through these things, let love define the conversation, let love characterize the conversation. Yes. Awesome. Well, Seth, uh, man, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thanks, Cameron. I love being here. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and we will uh, catch you another time. Thanks. Thanks.